0: Well, in reading this passage, you might be wondering how much a passage about grain plucking and a man with a withered hand and the Sabbath can truly teach you anything about God and how a passage like this can really apply to your life in the 21st century. After all, most of us, uh, the closest that we get to plucking grain is going to the grocery store and taking a box off the shelf and putting it into our grocery cart. If we have a withered hand, well, we know where to go, to the hospital. And we are in the new covenant as Christians now, so we don't have to keep the Sabbath, at least not in the same way that the Jews in the old covenant did. And yet... It is my conviction that every single passage in Scripture is worthy, applicable to our lives. And despite the things that we might come across and say, I don't know how this is going to apply to my life. Maybe I came on the wrong Sunday, if you're a visitor, thinking they're going to be talking about grain plucking, withered hands, Sabbaths. Um, But despite these things, with God's help, I'm confident that you will see that this passage teaches us so much about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is, in fact, just like every single scripture passage, very much relevant, if understood correctly, to our lives today in the 21st century. Now, this morning's passage is part of a section in Mark's gospel that contains multiple run-ins between the Pharisees and Jesus. And we've been looking at these run-ins the past few weeks, the past few Sundays together. And each of these confrontations follows the same basic pattern. First, Jesus says or does something that contradicts the teachings and traditions of the Pharisees. And then in response to what Jesus says or, or what he does, the Pharisees confront and question Jesus' teaching and the authority by which he is teaching. Then Jesus does not shrink back in these confrontations. Instead, he corrects the Pharisees and then reasserts and displays his authority in various ways. Today's scripture records two more of the confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now this time their disagreement seems to be over the keeping or really the breaking of the Sabbath and it follows the same pattern as the other run-ins. There's going to be uh, something that Jesus says or does and the Pharisees are going to respond to that and confront him and then Jesus is going to correct and display his authority. Now the, the, the fact is that the Pharisees at first seem to, as we've made our way through Mark's gospel, have looked at Jesus as something like a misguided teacher, maybe more of a distraction, somebody that they were going to wait out and, and just kind of watch the crowd turn on as they were following and listening to his teaching. But, but after this morning's passage, by the end of this morning's passage, the Pharisees' annoyance or their view that he was simply a misguided teacher that could be uh, just kind of, forgotten about will turn into full blown hatred for Jesus Christ it's going to their their annoyance is going to give birth to hatred as can be seen by their conspiring with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. Uh, the Herodians were Jews that the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with because they were so different theologically and politically. Uh, they, the Pharisees opposed cooperation with the Romans who had come into Israel and taken over the Jewish people. They had conquered them. But the Herodians were, were okay. They were willing to, to not only work with the Romans, but they saw it as their advantage to work with the Romans. And they were loyalists to a puppet Jewish king, King Herod. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians were something like most Republicans and Democrats. They did not get along. They, met, they didn't want to hang out. They didn't want to talk. They didn't see themselves as being on the same team. And yet now they're conspiring together. This unholy alliance reminds us that not only does a shared faith in Jesus unite people who once hated one another, I think if we were to tell our stories and our backgrounds, if we were to lay them out, our pilgrim story, uh, many of us would say, man, that was you? I would have hated you. I did hate you before Christ. And this is the reality of the gospel. It brings people together. Jesus brings people who once hated one another together. And yet a shared hate for Jesus can also unite people who once hated one another This happened in the first century, and it happens throughout the world today. The Apostle John, in his letter to the church in 1 John 3.13, tells the church that they should not be surprised that the world hates you. Jesus unites people, sometimes because they share a love for Jesus, and sometimes because they share a hate for Jesus. But what was driving this hatred for Jesus? What was at the heart of this disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees? Jesus didn't kill or hurt anybody so by at least western standards he should have just been left alone just he could teach and do his own thing and and that would be fine you have your truth you know i have mine type of view well that's not how things worked out in ancient israel and really when two truths collide something's got to give Jesus didn't just not kill or hurt anybody, he did the very opposite. He healed people. He would later on raise a man from the dead. Now, could it just have all been a misunderstanding between the Pharisees and Jesus? If both sides would have simply you know, taken some deep breaths, uh, quoted some, some positive thinking teacher to one another, maybe brought in a UN mediator, uh, put together a solid PowerPoint presentation uh, that contained each of their arguments on the Sabbath and, and why they came to the conclusions that they did, maybe even slept on it. It's always good to sleep on uh, uh, you know an email before you send it out if you think it might be kind of controversial, if, if it uh, might have something in there that you might want to correct the next day. So could they have just slept on it? Wouldn't that and these things allow them to to come to some type of agreement? Was this really just an unnecessary theological debate over secondary issues? Could Jesus and the Pharisees just have agreed to disagree? I kind of don't really understand that. What's agree to disagree? What does that really mean? Could they have done it, even though I don't really understand what it means? After all, Jesus and the Pharisees agreed on many of the essentials, it seems. Both of them believed that there was one God, that sin is what separates people from a holy God, and that sin is humanity's greatest problem. Both the Pharisees and Jesus believed that the Old Testament scriptures were the perfect, inerrant, infallible words of God. Jesus and the Pharisees even agreed on the bodily resurrection, eternal life for the righteous, and the eternal death and judgment of the wicked. There's so much in common. But this was not just a misunderstanding or an unnecessary theological debate over a secondary issue that went too far, that got too heated. This disagreement over the Sabbath was at its root about something much bigger than just the Sabbath. Behind this and all the other disagreements between Jesus and the Pharisees were two fundamentally different views on how God forgives sin and how God brings sinners into a relationship with himself. These are the two fundamental worldviews; these two different answers that the Pharisees and, the, and Jesus had for, for how it is that God forgives sin and brings people into fellowship with himself. These two competing views is really what is driving the disagreement here in this passage. The Pharisees taught that acceptance with God came by a person's ability to keep God's law. Jesus, on the other hand, taught that acceptance with God was by God's grace through faith, not by someone's obedience. Now these two differing views are captured well in the conversion of Levi, which we looked at a few weeks ago. I love the story. I've mentioned it already since we've covered it. Levi, also known as Matthew, who would write the Gospel of Matthew, is a tax collector. Jesus calls Levi from tax collecting. He was an enemy of the Jews, he, he had become a traitor, sold everything. He, his position in society gave up his family for money, and Jesus calls Levi. The, Pharise- the Pharisees were disgusted over Jesus calling Levi, this tax collector, to be his disciple. How could he do something like that? And if you understand their view about how God forgives sin and brings, them into, brings a sinner into fellowship with himself, it makes sense. This man doesn't qualify This man should be forgotten. He should receive God's judgment. He should not be called by a religious teacher who claims to be a follower and a speaker for God who would also claim to be God. He should not be called by this man to be one of his disciples. But then Jesus, showing his view about how it is that God saves sinners and forgives their sins, says this in Mark 2.17, this great gospel declaration. He had come not to call the righteous, But sinners. He had come to call the the sinners to God. These differing views of how God forgives and brings people into relationship with himself was at the heart of the disagreement in this morning's passage. You may not see it in first reading it, but this is the worldview that is coming out. These are, these are the, the truths that are clashing within the context. The, the surface issue, the first layer of the onion is the Sabbath. But if we pe- peel that off, really at the heart of it is the gospel. Forgiveness of sins and people coming into fellowship with God. So you see this passage has so much to say about who God is. About what the gospel is. And it has so much to be applied from to our very lives today. It's not just about grain plucking withered hands in the Sabbath. It's about Jesus and his gospel. I believe this helps to set the stage for Mark 2, 23 and 24. When Jesus' disciples plucked some of the grains in the fields on a Sabbath, the Pharisees accused them of not keeping the Sabbath. That is, they accused Jesus' disciples of knowingly, willingly, and purposely sinning. Now, according to Scripture, the disciples had not broken the fourth commandment, but they had violated at least one and likely two of the Pharisees' traditions, their interpretations of Scripture. See, over the centuries, Jewish teachers tried to build something like a wall around the Sabbath. It was a holy day, and so they wanted to protect it, and so they built a wall. And the way that they built this wall around the Sabbath was they made precedents, they made judgments. They had this, this long line of, of religious teachers who, who would kind of play the game of what if. I don't know if you've ever played that game, it was one of uh, my favorites as we would go on trips as a kid. What if this happens? You what if this happens? And sometimes it can get kind of dark. What if somebody comes into your house at night? Are you going to shoot them? Are you going to tackle them? You know, that, that, t- that type of game. That's what the Pharisees were playing with the, with the Sabbath. What if, what if this happens? And so they would answer that question with a judgment, and that judgment would be, it become a binding, uh, a binding law upon God's people. According to the Jewish tradition of the day, there were 39 specific types of activities that were classified by the teaching and tradition of the Pharisees as work and therefore were forbid, forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, this included many activities that you would say, yeah, that makes sense, uh, like plowing, like um, hunting, butchering, but it also included many that you would not expect. Honestly, that, that in reading through and hearing about, you would think, I don't know how to better describe, it. they're just plain silly, they're just ridiculous. Who would come up with these, these laws? You could not tie a thing. And if you accidentally tied something, you had to leave it tied. And even if you needed it untied, you needed to leave it tied until the Sabbath was over. You could only sew one stitch. So if you were walking and some, somehow you, your, your garment got caught on a branch and, and it ripped, well, you needed to really know how to use that one stitch well. Uh, Because you only had one. You could write one letter. You think about all the fun that people probably had with codes. You you could write one letter and that's it. This list also included a prohibition on how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath. You could take 1,999 steps. That's it. Not 2,000, 1,999. Friends, this was before pedometers. (laughs) Think about this. People who wanted to obey the Sabbath according to the Pharisees' interpretation of what it meant to keep the Sabbath had to count every single step. Otherwise, they would break the law, possibly. This prohibition on steps was probably one of the violations that the Pharisees had in mind when they accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath. They were were tiptoeing through the grain fields and probably not counting their steps. And the Pharisees said, what's going on here? Clearly, I mean, you just, you just walk through the grain fields. You've, you've got to have taken close to 2,000 steps already. Though the disciples had only grabbed a little snack, they had also, in grabbing that little snack, likely, this is probably the, the main one that the Pharisees were concerned with, broke another one of their precedents. And that is, the reaping of crops could not be done on the Sabbath day. They'd only grabbed a little snack. They had plucked a few grains from the fields. And Deuteronomy 23, 25 says that this is not stealing. Uh, it, it seems that, that Israel had this, this wonderful little uh, built-in law that if you're, you're going somewhere and you're strolling through a field and you found some food to nibble on, you could do that. You couldn't take a sickle to it, so you couldn't come in with your tractor. That would be the modern parallel, or a wheelbarrow, and just take a bunch. But if you're hungry, you're permitted to go through a field and just grab a little snack. And so Deuteronomy 23, 25 said that they could do that legally. But the Pharisees believed that their snacking qualified as work on the Sabbath. They had charged them with breaking knots. Truly, the fourth commandment put their understanding based on their tradition, based on the precedents that were made, based on the what-if game. They had declared the disciples of Jesus to have broken the fourth commandment. Well, Jesus responded to the Pharisees' accusations by first directing them to God's word. It's as if he says to them, have you ever read your Bible? That's that's what, what Jesus is, in essence, telling these Pharisees. Don't you remember what King David did? And this is, a, this is a, a reference to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, of how when David was fleeing from Saul, he was not yet king, he was fleeing from Saul, he had no food, and he was starving, and he was with his mighty men, and without food he remembered that the tabernacle would have some bread in it, the, the bread of the presence. This was, this was holy bread that had been set aside, representing the the. the way that god provides for his people one loaf for each of the tribes of israel and so there was bread in the tabernacle they were near the tabernacle and so david got the thought in mind that he could go that's where food would would easily be gotten for him and for his men and jesus pointed the pharisees to this story because he knew that the pharisees greatest hero was David. He was their ideal king, and in using this story of David and the Holy Bread, Jesus was putting himself in the same category as King David. You know, it'd be like, it'd, it'd be like if you played a pickup game of basketball, or maybe on Thanksgiving you went out and did some turkey bowl game, and you threw a nice pass to, to your buddy in the end zone, and caught the touchdown, then you got home, and you told your spouse about it, and you said it was just like Aaron Rodgers. Man, I, I went back, avoided the sack, swung, swung around, threw a 65 or 61-yard Hail Mary, and man, he caught it just like Richard Rogers. I mean, in, in essence, this, this is what Jesus was doing in the Pharisees' minds. He was putting himself in a category that he should not put himself in, and yet Jesus was referring to a story about King David in which King David seems to have done something wrong, Only the priests were allowed to eat that bread, and here David comes, and the priest gives him permission to eat that bread. And Jesus is pointing out that you're missing the point, Pharisees. God cares about your hearts. Yes, there's laws, there's commandments, but there's a reason behind those, and you're missing the point. You're missing who God is. Jesus was not dismissing God's law. Rather, he was putting the Pharisees' tradition in its place, and at the same time, he was revealing who he is. The Pharisees' teaching and tradition had caused them to distort and confuse God's purpose for the Sabbath. In verse 27, Jesus gives both God's purpose for the Sabbath, and he corrects the Pharisees, saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is so so wonderfully clear so, so clear in this statement. The Sabbath was made for man. And they were making man for the Sabbath. They had flipped things around. They had twisted things. Now to see how the, the, the Sabbath was made for man, I want to turn your attention to Exodus 20, 8-11, which records the fourth commandment. So if you would flip over to Exodus 20, I think this one will be on the screen. Exodus 20, 8-11. There's so much theology in this passage about the Sabbath. The instructions for the Sabbath were clear. Israelites, their families, along with any servants they might have, their animals and any foreigners with them, were to work for six days. Work's not evil, despite what we sometimes think about it. It's, it's a blessing. It's, God made us to work his creation, to steward it. And then on the seventh day, the Israelites were to cease from doing their work. That's what Sabbath means, to stop, to cease. We think it it means rest, but it, it really means stop, cease. So to remember the Sabbath in the most basic sense was for an Israelite to cease from doing their normal work on the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath was not a prohibition against the exertion of any energy, That's what the Pharisees were getting at. Man, would you want to celebrate and enjoy the Sabbath in first century Israel if the Pharisees were running the show? I would be tempted to just sit in my bed and not get up if I was faithful to God and trying to obey him and under the teaching of the Pharisees. It's safer just to stay in your house. Don't light a candle. Don't do anything. If you really want to keep the Sabbath, that's the only way. That's that's where things were headed with the Pharisees. But on the Sabbath, babies still had to be cared for and fed. People still needed to eat. Animals needed to be watered and fed and milked. The ceasing on the Sabbath that the faithful Jew was really to do, according to God's word, to keep it holy, was from doing whatever work was not necessary for life to be sustained and maintained. They were to rest from their normal work. So how was a Sabbath made for man? How how? What, what's behind this statement, this, this first part of, of Jesus' response to the Pharisees? I think it's wonderful. Even in the Old Covenant, we can see these wonderful truths that I believe clearly point to the gospel and God's grace. See, every Sabbath was a weekly reminder that God is the mighty God who created everyone and everything. It's not that God was exhausted on the seventh day from creating and he needed to rest it's not like us. He doesn't need to sleep. It's that on the sixth day, God had finished creating. And so on the seventh day, he stopped. It was done. Everything that needed to be created was done. And so he sabbathed, he rested, he ceased from creating. In the sabbath, the rhythm of the Israelites' work week mirrored the pattern of creation and reminded God's people that God is the creator built-in theology into their very structure of their week. In the Sabbath, God taught his people about salvation. This can be seen in Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 5.15. The Sabbath had first been given to Israel in the context of salvation, even before Exodus 20 and the commandments, when God miraculously saved Israel. They were starving. Another time where God's people were starving. They needed food, and God provided manna, this bread-like substance From heaven, And in that providing of the manna, God told Moses that the Israelites were to collect this manna from heaven, this gift from God that would sustain their bodies for six days. And on that sixth day, they were to collect a a second portion because he would not give them manna on the seventh day because they were to cease from collecting. The Sabbath reminded God's people every week that God saved his people from death, that the Lord alone was their saviour. The significance of the Sabbath is made clear in Deuteronomy when after Moses reaffirms the covenant, he says this in Deuteronomy 15.5. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In this way, the Sabbath was a built-in reminder every single week of their lives that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. We see the Reformation coming through in the Sabbath. It's beautiful. God gave the Sabbath to the Israelites to be a rhythm to their work week and rest that required that they cease from doing their usual work and that they remember that the God who made them had saved them, that they were not their own, but belonged to God, and they were a people saved not by their works, but by the Lord's mighty hand. The Sabbath was for man, and that is a day for worshiping God. It was a gift. God said, I want you to worship me, not because I need it, but because you were made to worship me. And so I'm going to set apart a day in your week where you can even be more focused On worshiping me. The believer does not look at worship as drudgery. Man, Sunday I gotta worship it. No. A gift from God to worship their creator and savior. For something to be holy means it's set apart. And on this holy set apart day, they were to remember God's people that God had saved them and that they should rightly desire to worship him. Every day is a great day to worship the Lord. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Every day is a great day to worship the Lord. And yet the Sabbath was to be a day to work less and worship more. As one commentator puts it, the Sabbath was a day of heightened worship of God. We worship God all the time. We want to give him glory in everything we do, in our work. There's not a separation of work and faith. And yet... The Sabbath was to be this heightened day of worship of God, designed to help people become spiritually stronger and draw nearer to God. Instead of it being a reminder of God's power, of God's grace, and a day of worship for God's people, the Pharisees made the Sabbath a day for their own religious works. They had twisted it. Yes, maybe they were ceasing from physical labor, but they were working hard to get right with God. And they were were dumping this this law, these works onto the people of God. They had made the Sabbath the means of establishing their self-righteousness. We see this very clearly in this passage in connection with the man with the withered hand. Mark 3, 1 through 2. So we're going to skip there and we'll come back to the rest of the passage. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Because of their hard hearts, they wanted to catch Jesus in the act of violating their own traditions. Man, these people would have been the worst people to hang out with. People just constantly, they were like the older sibling that was just on the prowl, ready to tattletale, just looking for, for any mistake by their younger siblings so that they could tell on them. That's the the heart of the Pharisees. They show no concern for the man and his need and would rather the man wait a day to be healed than have Jesus heal the man that day. They have missed God's heart in giving the command to remember the Sabbath. They made man for the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath for man. As another demonstration of his authority and a display of his compassion, Jesus called the man to him. What a powerful scene. Put yourself in the, the, the man with the withered hands position. He's at the synagogue there to worship God. Sees this drama unfolding. Probably could sense the, the confrontation, the tension in the room. And now Jesus, one of the, the people at, at, in the middle of this disagreement, calls him to him. What a powerful scene Unfolding. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus was not asking for their permission according to their tradition. He was making the point that it's always a good day to do good. Every single day. There are no limits on doing good, and good glorifies God. But the Pharisees were silent. Their faith in the false gospel of legalism kept them from seeing the grace of God in Jesus. They were blind. Here God was going to change a man's life forever. He would worship after this day with two hands instead of just one. His life would forever be changed, but they missed it. And so Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, even there we see the com- compassion of Christ for those who hate him. He was grieved over the hardness of their hearts, And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He called him to do the very thing that he could not do. And so in order to do what Jesus had commanded him to do, he had to have faith. If he did not believe that when he stretched out his hand, which he had probably tried to do thousands and thousands of times before, well, he would not have stretched out his hand, but he believed, he had faith in Jesus, and he stretched out his hand, and he was healed. His hand was restored. This is the result of believing that you must earn your place with God rather than enjoy and worship God when he works in someone's life, when God works his grace, when he unveils Christ to somebody. Rather than rejoicing, you know what you'll do? You'll compare yourself, your story, your blessings, and you'll be upset and you'll be angry and you'll probably even, in your mind, judge that person. They're not worthy of salvation. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. This is the, the two differing views about how it is that God forgives sinners and brings them into fellowship with himself played out. When God's grace comes and changes somebody's life, Those with hard hearts who do not believe the gospel will be so angry about it. And this brings us to the final part of Jesus' response to the Pharisees, and it's full and it's weighty. Jesus says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This was a claim again of his authority if they had somehow missed this connection that Jesus was making to his divine authority when he compared himself to David, I don't think they missed it. But if they did, they couldn't have missed it any longer. The Sabbath was patterned after God's work in creation. And in God's work of salvation, it was about God's sovereign hand over everything, over how he makes things and how he saves and who he saves. And now Jesus was saying, I am Lord over the Sabbath. The connection is clear. He is saying that I am Lord. To be Lord over the Sabbath is to be Lord. And so now he's claiming this lordship in front of the Pharisees. He's claiming to be the God who made them and the Savior. This is also a statement about Jesus' mission. He is Lord of the Sabbath because he had come to completely fulfill the purpose of the Sabbath. He came so that all who come to God by grace through faith can have true and forever rest. A rest that you can only have if you have Christ. You can be the laziest sluggard ever and not have the same type of rest that the busiest Christian has. I'm not lying. Not at all. The author of Hebrews writes Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The legalist, whether they are a Pharisee or some modern version, some works righteousness, Jesus plus their own righteousness person, who is wrapped up in some other, uh, some other view of how it is that God saves sinners other than by his grace in Christ, will not have this rest. They will spend their whole lives pursuing a rest that they cannot have by their own obe- obedience. We find where this rest truly comes from in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. Another sweet, wonderful truth for our hearts this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The words of Christ. Come to me. Where is rest found? Jesus says, it is found in me. Jesus invites all who labor and are heavy laden. Even, this is crazy, this is, this is the, the audacity of the gospel, even Pharisees, He invites them, even those of you who are trusting right now in your own works, who are in your mind saying, Yeah, but, yeah, but, it can't be that good. It cannot be that easy. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. He invites all who labor and are heavy laden to come to him because he is where rest is found for the heavy hearted soul. In the new covenant, the Sabbath rest is not about a day, it's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is the one that the Sabbath ultimately pointed to. Paul tells us this in Colossians 2.17 where he says that the Sabbath was a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. I love that image. A shadow. Do you want to hug a shadow? You haven't seen someone that you love for a long time? Do you go to the shadow? No. You go to the substance and you want to wrap your arms around them. And so to turn to the Sabbath, to think that rest could ultimately truly be found in the Sabbath is to hug a shadow. But if you have rest, true rest that only God can give by his grace, well, you have hugged, you have embraced Christ. And he is the one who gives you the rest that your soul longs for. Though the Pharisees missed it, we must not. You must not miss Jesus today. I say that to the believer and the non-believer. Don't miss the joy and the rest that you have in Christ. We're coming into busyness, aren't we? A season in which we reflect on the incarnation and at the same time, the inclination of our flesh is often busy, run, go. (laughs) Craziness and now, by God's grace, he has put into your lap this reminder of where your rest is truly found, even in your busyness. Not in a day, not even in a vacation, not even in retirement, but in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not good news about a bunch of rules that you must follow to earn your salvation. It is good news about what Jesus has done to earn your salvation. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works righteousness, but by grace. It's not that the gospel is not about obedience at all. It's that it's not about your obedience. It's about obedience, but it's about Jesus Christ's obedience. He was completely, perfectly obedient to his Father. He never sinned. Not just obedient at the cross, but obedient his entire life. Father, take this cup from me if there's any other way. There wasn't. There's no other way for sinners to be forgiven. And so Jesus held that cup and he drank that cup. We're going to drink the cup in a few minutes together. Jesus was perfectly obedient. It's about obedience, it's just not about your obedience, it's about Christ's obedience. God accepts every sinner who trusts in Jesus and those who are saved by grace desire to obey now because they have been accepted, not so that they would be accepted. The Pharisees got this backwards and sadly so many today, even possibly some of you here today, even those of you who have grown up in the church have gotten this backwards too. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But Christianity, the gospel says, I'm accepted, and therefore I obey. Huge difference. Just a few words switched in the order of things. Huge difference. What drives the worship of God in the heart of the believer? They've been accepted by grace. They're not lifting their hands, they're not singing. They're not serving Christ because they want to get something from God. Jesus has earned everything for God's people. He has been obedient for us. If grace is not the fuel for your obedience, then the only way that you can try to be obedient is through legalism. Through putting rules on top of rules on top of rules. Building your own walls to protect your holiness. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to crush you. By God's grace, sometimes it crushes people, and then they see the glory of the gospel. But sometimes people hold on to that. They're so prideful. They've been living their lives in some religious tradition that is heaped on law and law and law, and they will not let go. They will not let go. It is their foundation. But as we looked at it last week, that foundation must be, be destroyed, and a new and a better foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, must be put in its place. The Pharisees saw no need for Jesus. They wanted to get to God by themselves, but they couldn't and we can't either. Only Jesus can bring sinners to God and cause hard hearts to become hearts that joyously to- desire to obey God. Jesus has put an end to works righteousness because he accomplished the work for your righteousness. Oh, believer, what a sweet gospel truth that never gets old. You cannot be righteous enough on your own. But Jesus, the righteous one, is your righteousness. And everything that you long for is rooted in and comes to you only by God's grace, not by your works. You weren't pretty enough, you weren't handsome enough, you weren't cute enough, you weren't good enough at sports. None of it. And yet, for his glory, because of his grace, to display his awesome Awesome character. God has saved you by grace, not by your works. And because of this, friends, we are able to and we are called to find our rest in Him. The glorious gospel message is that salvation comes not by our works, but only by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and He calls us not to rest in our works, but in His finished work. This is the gospel. That saves. This is the gospel that you, believer, must cling to. Though your heart will wander, this is the only gospel, and it is the gospel that has saved you. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, if we were to make up our own gospel, we could not make up something sweeter and greater than this precious and true gospel. As we look at this passage that that at its heart really displays two different Gospels, one of works righteousness and one of Christ righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would unveil the hopelessness of moralism, the hopelessness of trying to earn a place before you. We pray, Father, that you would help the believer to rest in right now the great finished work of Christ, who is the righteousness. And we do pray, Lord, for our friends, our family members, our neighbors, that they too, by your grace, would find the rest that their soul longs for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.